Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. The fish aren't biting today, one of the fishermen remarked to the other in frustration. It was 5am, the height of summer. The sun had already risen and was reflecting off the boat as it bobbed in the sea just a couple of miles off the coast of Devon in the south of England. The core of seagulls waiting to see if they boasted success pierced the morning air. The other fisherman rubbed his chin in contemplation, looking out towards the horizon. Take her further out, he retorted lazily. He'd been working the sea long enough to know patience won over skill every time. The boat putted another six miles out and dropped anchor again, in an area which was less fished. The temperament of the waves and the current in these waters had earned it the nickname The Roughs, but both men felt it was a more promising location for a decent haul. Sure enough, their first net, which had rested for an hour or so in the deeper waters, felt weighty as they pulled it up, a good sign. But as the taut rope of the net relaxed on the deck, revealing its catch, it wasn't the fish the fishermen take note of, but the body lying among them. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 13, The Rolex Watch. It's the 28th of July 1996, and one of the fishermen immediately radios in to Brixham Coast Guard. His voice is shaky as he reports their discovery. The body, clearly a man, was dressed in a long-sleeved shirt, brown shoes, and trousers of which the pockets had been turned out. His face, well preserved by the salt water, bore a serene expression. But there was no wallet or driving license to reveal his identity. The only other item of note was a heavy silver Rolex watch on his left wrist, bearing the time 
11.33. The number contained in the small square on the dial said 22. Did this suggest that the watch had stopped when it entered the sea? On the 22nd of July, six days earlier. Devon and Cornwall police were immediately informed and the coroner's office was also told to expect an incoming body recovered at sea. Unsurprisingly, immediate assumptions swirled around the idea that this man had suffered a tragic accident. Perhaps he'd fallen off one of the boats travelling up or down the coast, but initial calls to the relevant coast guards and harbours didn't suggest anyone had been reported missing or unaccounted for. Then there was the other tragic possibility, that this man had taken his own life and thrown himself into the water. But again, Devon and Cornwall police didn't have any reports on file which tallied with the body which had been found. Who could this man be? The post-mortem was conducted quickly. The man's body was meticulously examined for clues. Clues which spoke to not only how he died, but who he was. With a calm efficiency developed with years of practice, the pathologist wrote down his findings. The body was largely intact and free of significant injury, aside from the most obvious sign of trauma, a deep gash across the back of the gentleman's skull. So, was this the cause of death? Or could it have been inflicted when the heavy nets of the fishing trawler connected with the deck of the boat? On the back of the man's right hand, which was tanned and lined, was a distinct, if slightly faded, tattoo. The pathologist scrutinised it from every angle. It was hard to make out. It looked like a spiked flower, maybe. The pathologist, following the blurred outlines of the sketch, settled on what he thought it was. A collection of stars in a ring with one in the centre. It was unusual and unique and would surely be a key identifying feature when it came to working out who this man was. Then, of course, there was the watch, which the pathologist had removed and set aside to be examined. One of the police officers present wondered aloud whether the watch was genuine. If it is, he said, it'll have a serial number on it. That might be a way to find the owner. It was a great thought, and with a little more investigation, Devon and Cornwall detective DC Ian Clenahan did indeed discover that all Rolex watches are etched with a unique number to differentiate them from counterfeits and to establish the uniqueness of the watch. However, that doesn't mean proof of ownership is easy to establish. Collectibles such as these are often handed from person to person, passed down through generations or given as gifts. There was a small chance, however, that if the watch had been sent in for service by its owner, the details of said owner had been recorded and kept. Certainly worth some more investigation. Officers began the process of phone-bashing Rolex stockists and retailers across the country. No easy feat. But eventually, it led to the first real lead in this case. A jewellers in Yorkshire had indeed serviced the watch on a couple of occasions 
and they'd made a note of the owner, a Ronald Joseph Platt. The significance of this finding wasn't lost on the coroner, Hamish Turner. Without the watch, the smoking gun which led to identifying the body, he knew he would have had to return an open verdict on the man who was on the table. Now the police had a name to work with, they began to investigate exactly who Ronald Platt was, which would, they hoped, lead them to understand how he ended up in the sea. His last known address was found to be an unassuming semi-detached house in Chelmsford, a town in Essex. Ronald hadn't lived there very long, having taken a six-month tenancy to rent the house. Though the landlord didn't have much personal information about the new occupant, having only met him a couple of times and only spoken about house-related things, he'd found the man to be helpful and cheerful. He dug out Ronald's tenancy agreement from his files and told officers all the details it contained, one of which was the name and address of Ronald's personal referee. Mr D. Davis lived on Old Brompton Suite in London and, to be a personal referee, clearly knew Ronald well. A detective from Essex Police, D.S. Peter Redman, was the first to make contact with Mr Davis, though, rather than face-to-face, this initial exchange took place over the phone. Mr Davis was understandably disconcerted by receiving a call from the police, and he was insistent on knowing the reason. Why was he being asked so many questions about Ronald? What had happened? However, when D.S. Redman reluctantly broke the tragic news, Mr. Davis seemed to take it in his stride. He reacted calmly, stoically even, and he did want to help. He suggested meeting D.S. Redman to tell him everything he knew about Ronald. Maybe that could move the investigation on. David Davis strode into Essex Police Station with a smile on his face and introduced himself to the desk sergeant. He had a charming air, self-assured and calm. He was dressed in nice clothes and, in a subtle transatlantic accent, reiterated to D.S. Redman that he was eager to help. In an interview room, coffees in hand, David told D.S. Redman how he knew Ronald. They'd been friends for a number of years, and David had actually loaned Ronald some money to set up a business in France. As far as David knew... That was where Ronald had gone. D.S. Redman mentioned Ronald's star tattoo, and David laughed. That's not stars, he said assuredly. It's a maple leaf. David and D.S. Redman said goodbye to one another in the entranceway of the station. Both thanked the other for their time, but when he reached the door, David turned and said, almost as an afterthought, that he'd try to get his hands on a photograph of Ronald for the officer's records. And, a few days later, he made good on his word. A photo of Ron standing underneath an umbrella in the rain, looking at a horse in a paddock, was delivered to Essex Police. And that, as far as D.S. Redmond was concerned, wrapped up the Essex side of the inquiry. Or so he thought. D.S. Redman had a mountain of paperwork to get through, but didn't he always? Murders, robberies, you name it, he was dealing with it. 
He was about to stand up and get himself a coffee when his phone began to ring. It was Devon and Cornwall, and sure enough, DC Ian Clenahan was on the other end of the line. After D.S. Redmond's previous assistance, all details of the investigation had been handed back to Devon and Cornwall to be finalised. The last I's dotted, the final T's crossed. But there'd been a small stumbling block. D.C. Ian Clenahan, the officer in charge, couldn't get hold of David Davis to ask some remaining questions. He wasn't answering his phone. Apologetically, knowing how busy the Essex officer was, D.C. Clenahan asked whether he could call in one more favour. Would D.C. Redmond mind making a house call to David Davis and prompting him to get in touch? D.S. Redmond agreed. If it got him out of the office and away from his desk, he was only too happy to oblige. It was another sunny day as D.S. Redman drove into the tiny, leafy hamlet of Woodham Walter in Essex. There were only four houses, but, rather unhelpfully, none had obvious numbers or names on their doors. D.S. Redman stepped out of his car, stretched and made his way up the path of the first house, knocking sharply on the door. An elderly woman answered with her husband making his way up the hall behind her. Apologising for disturbing them, D.S. Redman explained he was looking for a farmhouse called Little London and for the man that lived there, David Davis. Ah, the woman said, with the air of someone who'd had to explain this error plenty of times before, we're Little London House. The farmhouse is next door. But, she added, There's no David Davis there, I'm afraid. Just our neighbour, Ronald Platt. D.S. Redmond blinked. Were the couple confused? Had they got the names mixed up? Or had Ron actually lived with his friend for a time and they didn't know he was dead? He tried to get to the bottom of it. I hate to break it to you, he said. But Ronald Platt is dead. Dead? The man on the doorstep laughed. He can't be. I saw him just this morning. The huddled group on the doorstep tried to reach some understanding, and the couple described their charming, well-dressed Canadian neighbour. With blinding clarity, realisation hit D.S. Redman. Their neighbour, the man in Little London Farmhouse, was David Davis, posing as Ronald Platt. But why? Dias Redman went and sat back in his car. His mind was racing. He knew instinctively that something significant was unfolding, but he couldn't put his finger on exactly what. What was clear was that David Davis was pretending to be his deceased friend. It was also clear he wasn't the helpful, friendly person he was making himself out to be, and that some alternative agenda was at play. And it was very clear to D.S. Redman just how fortuitous it had been to knock on the door of the wrong house. If he'd knocked on the right one, he'd have passed the message on to the man he believed to be David Davis. And that would have been that. D.S. Redman picked up his phone and called D.C. Clenahan. He relayed what had just happened to stunned silence. Both officers agreed that this changed the course of the investigation. 
It cast doubt on whether Ronald Platt had indeed met his death accidentally, and they needed to get to the bottom of it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Dias Redman went back to the house of the elderly couple. But this time they took their conversation into the kitchen rather than idling on the doorstep. Frank and Audrey were only too happy to tell the officer everything they knew about their neighbour. Over strong cups of tea, they remembered Ron moving into Wood and Walter a few years ago. Ron was friendly, happy to chat whenever they bumped into one another. When Frank inquired what had brought him to Devon, Ron had regaled them with tales of his love of sailing. He owned a boat down in the harbour and had wanted to be near the water. Light bulbs went off in D.S. Redmond's head. Could that boat have been the last place Ron was seen alive? Was the boat the place from which he'd fallen into the sea? Or worse, been pushed? The detective needed to find that boat, though, frustratingly, despite being sure they'd been told at some point, Frank and Audrey couldn't recall the name of it. A quick call to Devon and Cornwall police set things in motion. Officers made their way back down to Brixham Harbour in the early hours of the morning. They wanted to speak to the fishermen who'd hauled in Ron's body. Predictably, they were there, having just sailed back in from the sea. A conversation on the harbour front quickly revealed that, as well as a body in that fateful hall, had been an anchor. Could this anchor have belonged to David Davis's boat? The officers eagerly asked to see it, but the fishermen looked at one another a little sheepishly. The anchor had been given to a friend, and this friend had in turn given it to his mother, telling her to sell it at the local car boot sale to see if it would fetch any money and she had dutifully followed her son's instructions. However, luckily for everyone involved, the anchor hadn't caught the attention of any buyers at the car boot sale. It was now in storage in the woman's garage, still complete with the £15 price sticker stuck to its side. The officers who'd been trying to trace the anchor 
a lead which had turned into a wild goose chase, breathed a sigh of relief, and they took it into evidence. Meanwhile, officers had been pursuing other leads available to them. It stood to reason that the real Ron Platt had friends and family, connections other than David Davis, who could illuminate police about his life, and what had led him to cross paths with the man who'd now stolen his identity. This led investigators to Ron's brother, and then to Ron's ex-girlfriend, a northern woman called Elaine Boys, who'd been in a relationship with Ron for over ten years. They'd split up three years previously, so Elaine was more than surprised to receive a phone call from Devon and Cornwall Constabulary, informing her of her ex's death. She was in complete shock, but she didn't hesitate when it came to telling police everything she knew. Elaine had nothing but good things to say about Ron. She remembered him as kind and caring, if a little quiet from time to time. And of course, she remembered one of Ron's main treasures, his watch, which Ron was never seen without. Sitting around her kitchen table in the Yorkshire spa town of Harrogate, she flicked through photographs of her ex-partner. And, sure enough, the silver face of Ron's prized watch could be seen in many of the images. But a trip down memory lane wasn't the only insight Elaine had to offer. She was able to fill in the piece of the puzzle about where Ron had met David Davis. The couple had met him five years earlier. Harrogate boasts plenty of antique and fine art studios, and it was into the one Elaine happened to be working that David Davis confidently strode. The tall, possessing man spent 20 minutes browsing the art, frequently leaning in to examine a particular antique or sculpture. Eventually, he made his way to the desk where Elaine was working and engaged her in conversation. Wistfully, Elaine remembered that they talked for over an hour and that her first impressions of David Davis were that he was very charismatic. He was very knowledgeable about paintings and clearly well-travelled. He was also devoted to the church. David told Elaine that he was planning to move to Yorkshire, somewhere remote in the stunning Yorkshire Dales. And before taking his leave, out of nowhere, David offered his new friend a job with his own company, Cavendish Corporation. The job would be to travel to various European cities to view properties for the company to potentially acquire. And it was a job on a better salary than she was currently on. And a job which would allow her and her boyfriend Ron to save up to make the move across the Atlantic to Canada, which they'd been planning to do for some time. It seemed too good to be true. A chance meeting with a handsome stranger opening doors to Elaine and Ron's future. But after Ron met David, he too agreed that this American was the real deal and encouraged Elaine to take him up on his offer. Not only that, David made the couple directors of Cavendish Corporation and gave them shares in the uncapped future profits. It was an incredibly exciting time for the humble couple, though Elaine, pausing in her storytelling rather abruptly, did remember something which struck her as odd at the time. 
David Davis himself didn't want to be listed as a director of his own company. That decision did seem strange. Why would this businessman not want to shout his success from the rooftops? But he had a very simple explanation. David told Elaine and Ron that his wife, soon to be ex-wife, was an eminent GP from New York. She was seeking money from him, money which he didn't believe she was entitled to. Keeping his own name off the company documents was a way of safeguarding his assets. The couple were sad for him that he had to go to such lengths, but they were empathetic to his plight and readily agreed to help. Elaine's job was exactly as described. She flew around Europe viewing residential and commercial properties and reporting back to David about them. It was an occupation which opened up the world to her like never before and allowed her to see some amazing cities and towns. The workload was relatively light too and the only thing which compromised her sightseeing in Rome or beach strolls in Spain was having to do as her boss asked and make various deposits in his bank accounts across the continent. David's money, not Elaine's. But those interruptions were a small price to pay. And, after all, as everyone agreed, neighbours, locals, even the reverend of the church, David was such a nice boss, such a nice man. Elaine continued to enjoy her new job, and the unexpected perks it brought with it. But nothing was more surprising than her employer's Christmas gift to her in the year of 1992. In her card, David promised to expedite the couple's long-held ambition to move to Canada by buying them their plane tickets. Though with the strange caveat that they'd have to book them by the end of February 1993, which was just two months away. With seemingly unending generosity he told the couple that there was no time like the present and that he wanted them to start the new life they'd always dreamt of. After some deliberation, Ron and Elaine decided to throw caution to the wind. They booked the tickets, packed up their belongings and said goodbye to loved ones. There were a few bits of work admin to sort too, mainly making rubber stamps of their signatures so David could continue to sign official paperwork when they were in Canada. But, as so often happens with dreams, they don't turn out to be what you expected. The couple's previous caution might well have been wise. They arrived in Canada in the depths of winter, and neither were able to get a job. Neither felt like they were able to settle, and the relocation began to put a strain on the relationship. So it was a relief to Elaine when she was able to return back to the UK six months later to attend a wedding. And what a surprise to see David there. Though his greeting to her was a little strange, he seemed more preoccupied with when she was going back to Canada than how she was. And when she admitted she was still thinking about moving home permanently, he seemed stranger still. Elaine tried to contact David after the wedding, She wanted to keep in touch, but, unable to reach him, a mutual friend told her that he'd moved away, leaving Harrogate with no notice, no explanation, and no forwarding address. Though in reality he'd moved to the village of Woodham Walter in Essex, 
where he continued to live life as Ron Platt, away from Elaine, who would have been able to expose him. Elaine continued her trip down memory lane with police officers. She remembered that she had in fact spoken to David Davis around three months after Ron's body had been found. And, knowing what she knew now, she was flabbergasted to realise he didn't utter a single word about it. Nothing about Ron's death. Nothing about Ron's body turning up in a fishing boat off the Devon coast. And it wasn't as if Ron hadn't come up in conversation. Elaine had even asked if David and Ron had been in touch. And David had said he had indeed seen Ron, but that he'd moved to France. And that was that, until David once again got in touch with Elaine. This time, armed with more information, she asked her old employer whether he knew about Ron's death. But David's response was surprising. David suggested he and Elaine meet. He wanted to speak to her to catch up face to face. He'd come up north to see her. And in a Harrogate coffee shop, Elaine tried to conceal how frightened she was. She sat opposite this man she'd known for years now, and the facade of him seemed to fade away before her eyes. She was no longer blinded by his charm or kindness. Looking into his eyes... She saw it all as superficial, and there was a lump in her throat as her old employer spoke of all the prayers he'd said in church for Ron. As soon as the meeting with David ended, Elaine went home and rang the police. By this point, they too were convinced that this man was complicit in the death of his namesake, Ron Platt, and they made ready to arrest him when he arrived back in Essex. But David Davis had other plans. The taxi driver felt his face grow hot as he saw the flashing blue lights in his rearview mirror. I wasn't doing anything wrong, was I? He asked his passenger. The tall, friendly man sat next to him in the front of the car, but the man didn't answer. Suddenly, one police car turned to three, and in front of them, armed officers surrounded the vehicle. Jesus! muttered the cabbie. And as an officer with a gun approached the window and told his passenger to exit the vehicle, he did so coolly, his hands raised. He didn't say a word as he was placed under arrest. At the station, his dual identity was formally confirmed. As officers turned out his pockets, one ID card read David Davis. Another read Ronald Joseph Platt. But, though highly suspicious, this was far from proof that David Davis had killed his old acquaintance. Police needed more evidence. On October the 31st, aptly Halloween, 1996, D.S. Redman drove to David Davis's house to conduct a thorough search. Like something out of a heist movie, Detectives found gold bars in a suitcase, and more were littered around the house. There was £25,000 in cash, and valuable paintings tucked away in a cupboard. Back in the station interview room, David Davis refused to answer any questions, simply stating over and over again, no comment. 
police knew they'd need to work harder, need to dig deeper. And happily, they discovered the name of Davis's boat, the Lady Jane. But they didn't know where it was moored. As luck would have it, one of the detectives who arrived in the briefing room one morning spotted a picture of the boat and recognised it. A keen sailor himself, he knew it was moored at a dry dock nearby. And, sure enough, the officers who were dispatched found it exactly as he said, sitting majestically amongst the other yachts. The boat was seized and subsequently swarmed by a forensic team. Every inch of the boat was tested and DNA profiles were discovered on a couple of cushions in the cabin. DNA profiles which, after analysis, would turn out to match Ron Platt's blood. Ron's hair was found too, and examination of a carrier bag also revealed Ron's fingerprints. Then there was the receipt, which linked the anchor found with Ron's body to a local shop with a date and time of purchase. When questioned, the shop owner remembered two men matching Ron and David's descriptions coming in to buy the item. And one look at the anchor told pathologists it was the item used to inflict the wound on Ron's head. The evidence kept on piling up against the Canadian and, following the usual protocol, Essex police realised they had to inform Interpol of his arrest as he was a non-British citizen. However, here lay another twist in the tale and DS Redman, who made the call, was once again in for a shock. The man they had in custody was not only not Ronald Platt, he also wasn't David Davis. He was in fact a man called Albert Johnson Walker, a fugitive from Canada, and a man on top of Interpol's Most Wanted. Albert Johnson Walker was a seemingly happy family man. Large-set, jovial, self-possessed. He lived in Ontario with his family. But behind the scenes, things were far less picture-perfect. Albert's booming voice could regularly be heard from the sidewalk as he shouted in anger as one of the frequent arguments took place. The neighbours all knew Albert's marriage to his wife was on the rocks and deteriorating rapidly. But at least his investment business was going well. That was something. So one frosty Canadian day in the winter of 1990, when the blue lights of a cop car pulled up outside the Johnson family home, curtains twitched and people came out onto their porches, despite the cold, to find out what was going on. It turned out that jovial Albert Walker had fled the country with $3.6 million of clients' money. Albert, knowing he needed to keep moving to evade capture, he'd travelled to England, then on to Switzerland, under the assumed name David Davis. The real David Davis, a slight, mild-mannered man, was a Canadian who had invested in Albert's company, invested money which was now being used to fund Albert's escape around Europe. Just two years later, Albert met the couple who would go on to provide his next identity, Elaine Boys and Ronald Platt. 
Ron, being a Brit, had all the information and details Albert needed to obtain things like a British bank account, a phone contract or a rental agreement, things he needed to finally settle somewhere and build a new life. Once Elaine and Ron had moved to Canada, Albert could live in relative security, knowing there was no one to inadvertently reveal his double life. Albert moved to a couple of villages around the south of England before eventually settling in Essex with the money he'd stolen in tow. And he congratulated himself on getting away with it all. That was until he got news that the real Ron Platt was on his way back to Britain. And he was in danger of being exposed. Albert welcomed back his old friend Ron with open arms. How brilliant it is to be reunited, he exclaimed. The Americans suggested the pair go out sailing to celebrate and to catch up. He wanted to hear all about Ron's time in Canada. After all, it was a country he knew well. Albert readied the Lady Jane and the friends bought a new anchor from a local sailing shop, Ron looking forward to the boat trip they were about to take. Albert was motivated by something much more sinister. The scene was easy, though horrific, to imagine. Ron chatting amiably as the boat made its way out to sea, nearing the harsher waters of the roughs. And Albert readying himself to hit Ron over the head with the anchor, to silence him for good, and preventing him from ever revealing Albert's secret. The police had all the information they needed to take the case to trial, which took place at Exeter Crown Court in June 1998, but like everything in this story, it wasn't a clear-cut case. After all, no one had witnessed the murder, and there clearly wasn't going to be any kind of confession from Albert. But the Rolex watch, the key item which had led police to confirm the identity of the body found in the fisherman's nets, offered up yet another piece of vital evidence. Ron's treasured watch was self-winding and had frozen in time around 48 hours after it came to rest on the seabed. This allowed police to establish a date that Ron had entered the sea, making it the 20th or 21st of July. Checks into the electronic location system on the Lady Jane added further weight to the police and prosecution's assertions that Albert Walker had chartered his boat that day with the express purpose of pushing his old friend overboard. Sure enough, the latitude and longitude showed that Albert's yacht had been in close proximity to where Ron's body was eventually found, and there could have been no other boat captain than the one and only Albert Walker. Despite Albert's confident countenance and charm, it took a jury of twelve just two hours to find him guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison, where he remains to this day. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, And by me, Tracy Alexander. 
The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 pounds per month.